This is a Rooster Teeth production. March 16th, 1978. A traditional Hawaiian canoe left Honolulu with plans to travel to Tahiti using only ancient navigation methods and only the tools of their ancestors. Only a few hours later, the boat capsized and one crew member would never be seen again. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. We're back. We're back. We are back, like a sunken ship rediscovered in the cold waters of the Great Lakes. Ship hits the fan, rises from the depths, untouched by wood-eating bacteria. We sunk in cold waters. Of course, naturally, yeah. 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 Deep, real deep, Mm -hmm. not found for a long time, three Mm -hmm. weeks. Her masts gleaming, her hull untouched. Our vessel has been repaired and now sits in the museum of your mind. Crank that volume and tell your mom. Admission's free. All right. <laughs> I, I, I was proud of that one. Admissions free. Yeah, the museum of your mind. Because that's where a podcast lives. In the museum it's of like your mind. It's like the theater of the mind, but yeah. much more boring with a lot more plaques. Yeah. Anyway, we're back. Patrick, I would love to tell you about Hokulea. Okay. And I'd love to hear about it. At the top, I do apologize if I really, really mess up any... Uh, pronunciations or, you know, emphasis on syllables for uh, Hawaiian or Polynesian names. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing my best. But if you've been here for a minute, you know that our best is not amazing. Yeah, but we try. <laughs> but we try. We yeah. really are trying. Anyway, let's get into it. Mm-hmm. In 1973, a nautical anthropologist named Ben Finney, along with a Hawaiian artist named Herb Kauai Nui Kane, and a sailor named Charles Tommy Holmes founded the Polynesian Voyaging Society, PVS. Yeah, yeah. Which we will not refer to it as at all. No. Uh, Its purpose was singular and simple. Many historians at the time had claimed that the Polynesian islands had been settled by accident. Okay. (laughs) The prevailing belief at the time was that ancestors of modern Polynesians had boarded their boats and gone wherever the wind had taken them. The fact that they managed to land on an island where they could survive or even thrive was pure luck. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Okay. I think I see what's happening. The the pyramids couldn't have been built by people. It's aliens that did it. Oh, it's luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're a historian, that seems like you wanted to go home early that day. Mm -hmm. I can't figure out how they... Oh. How about luck? How about luck? How about they just closed their eyes and threw it at the dartboard? Yeah, yeah. I mean... Modern historians do agree that this is ludicrous. Uh, It's the equivalent of getting in your car and driving halfway across the country with no roads, no traffic lights, no signs, and finding the one motel, the only safe place to stay for hundreds of miles. And also, like, if what you're driving through is fire and you can't get out of your vehicle. And you can't drink the fire. Not not that you would anytime. Because fire is sort of like land water. Fire is sort of like land water. And aren't you glad, folks, that the show is back delivering uh, <laughs> the kinds of analysis. insights and, and perspective that you will not find from a trained, you yeah. know, because these scientists, they're just too buttoned up. They're too uh-huh. afraid of what this it, is. They're the, afraid to the, say that fire is like land water. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Get out there in the mentions and tell people that fire is land water mm-hmm. and you shouldn't drink it unless you are very, very thirsty. Yeah. 
Don't drink land water. Anyway, yeah, getting to these islands or getting, say, for the sake of the analogy, to this one motel, it's not something you do by accident. It's something you do with a specific strategy and plans. And, you know, maybe if you're in the car trying to get to this place, you're playing a podcast. Sure. You're listening to 30 Morbid Minutes. You're listening Mm -hmm. to Black Box Down. You're listening to uh, Face Jam. Yeah, Yeah, you're listening to Serial. All right. (laughs) Comedy Bang Bang. Anyway. Uh Uh-huh. Finney, Kane, and Holmes believed that this accident theory was reductive and did not properly credit the ancestors for their sailing and navigational skills. They believed that ancient Polynesians can and did settle the Polynesian Triangle using knowledge of the currents and non-instrument navigation. Insane to me that that's possible. I mean, it's not that I don't believe it. It's just that my my little bug mind can't wrap itself around that. Looking at the stars and being like, okay, well, that's north. (laughs) Okay, I just go that way. Yeah. Anyway, their first project as a historical society would be to build a fully functioning replica of a double-hulled voyaging canoe and sail it along the path they believed their ancestors had traveled thousands of years before. Cool. They approached multiple historical societies and the UN to fund their project, but people were skeptical for a few reasons. First and foremost, what if they were wrong? Mm -hmm. What if it had been one of those one in a million chances where people survived against all odds? They're about to go into the open ocean on a boat with no navigational machines, no engines, no radar, no way of finding them. Yeah. No TVs. No video games. No phones weren't even really, you didn't even have smartphones. Well, yeah, they had phones, but they weren't, you know, these days phones are more like computers (laughs) in a lot of ways. (laughs) Secondly, if they are wrong, will it make these societies and the UN look bad that they paid to send researchers on an unsafe expedition? I guess. I don't know. The Polynesian Voyaging Society spent about a year presenting their plans and findings to these groups to convince them the voyage was both possible and safe, and finally won them over. With funding and historical grants in place, some even from the UN, construction on the Hokulea began. The canoe took two years to build using replicas of ancient tools, and progress was overseen by the Polynesian Voyaging Society's navigator, Pius Mao Paelug. It's also worth noting that while this is described as being a double-hulled canoe, it is not at all like the canoes as we would define them today. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the kind of thing you take out on the lake with your family when you go to the mountain house and you capsize and your brother yes. gets stuck under it for like 30 seconds, but it's yeah, scary. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not good. Effectively, this is two giant canoes, mega canoe, mm-hmm. with fabric or woven coverings that have been treated to be water-resistant. Between the two canoes are stabilizing beams that allow crew members to walk between the two hulls. Additionally, the Hokulea came equipped with masts and large sails capable of being rigged and adjusted much like modern sails. I don't think I'm going out on too much of a limb here to say that this is uh, the coolest a boat can look. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, right? it, I mean it's kind of like a, a catamaran. Yeah. Right? Like, if picture that, but a lot bigger and more impressive. Yeah, way cooler and made by hand. Yeah. And just like using ancient tools, walking across it between both canoes is just like, come on. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's a one, you know, look it up, look it up. But despite its massive size, the Hokulea is said to be a little more than only half the size of the traditional canoes actually used by their ancestors, which would stretch over a hundred feet in length. Yeah. So you're probably wondering, Patrick, how did ancient Polynesians navigate? I'm going to guess stars. 
I mean, I think that that's part of it. And currents. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Let me, I'll get to it. Okay. okay. Pius, known to his friends as Mao, was instrumental to the society's project. He was born on the island of Satawal in 1932, and by the 70s, he was the, the mm-hmm. authority on traditional, non-instrument, wayfinding for open ocean voyaging. That's such a crazy thing to do. To just set off into the ocean <laughs> and just know. Just be like, I'm going to learn in 1932. Well, I guess he's... In the seventies, no, as I'm a two-year-old, I think the seventies get started early. Yeah, I'm going to become an expert on non-instrument wayfinding in the open ocean. How do you? Who teaches you? I don't know what. And what kind of reaction do you have like these days if someone were to tell you that was like pretty much their thing? You yeah, know, oh, that's, I mean, I'd be that's cool. Very I make, impressed, I'm impressed. I make podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm, I do a thing about boats. On I'm the a internet. content creator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's cool because sometimes I get underwear sent to my house for free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, not only was Mao the authority on mm-hmm. this type of uh, navigation, according to the society, in 1975, no living Hawaiian knew the ancient techniques for non-instrument navigation in the open ocean. Mao was one of the only living people who still practiced these techniques, mainly because he had grown up on Satawal, an island of only 500 people in the Caroline Islands in Micronesia. Okay. Caroline Islands, the original name? Um, <laughs> no, I have to assume that's somebody's sister or uh, wife uh-huh. or mother-in-law. Someone who discovered the island filled with people already living there? Uh, almost assuredly. Okay, yeah, but... okay. Just, yeah, just curious. <laughs> yeah, on Bridget Island. Yeah. Um, for those unfamiliar with Micronesia, it is an archipelago of islands east of Polynesia, which contains the Hawaiian and Tahitian islands, and north of Melanesia, which contains Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. These islands are some of the most remote in the archipelago, and thus maintained many traditions longer than other islands around them who had been colonized by the Spanish in the late 1700s and 1800s. Mm-hmm. Additionally, because they are an archipelago, but are close enough to be able to see islands from the shores of other islands, they not only learn to navigate between the islands based on these vantage points, but they also practice these techniques into the modern age. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. Yeah, because the Hawaiian Islands, like, I mean, some of them are super close to each other, but some of them are pretty, pretty far. far yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also, I it's think not it's something you can just like swim to. You also grow up if if you're an American seeing the map of the continental United States and then the little boxes with Alaska and Hawaii just yeah, yeah. bumped in there and you really don't get a good picture of just how far it is from the mainland. Oh yeah, it's it's quite far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh yeah, it is really interesting that these more remote islands were able to practice tradition for longer. It reminds me of like there's a lot of uh sort of, I guess, geographical architecture that's been lost over the years, like mm-hmm. like in the desert where you build it in such a way where it blocks out the heat and keeps in the cool and is oriented in such a way that it doesn't allow the heat in by the way the yeah. sun rises and sets. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of stuff like that, and similar things for cold climates, which have just been completely thrown to the wayside with the uh, innovations like central air and heat yeah. and insulation, which in the end, we probably end up expending so much energy we don't need to. It's yeah, just, yeah. Y- you know, there are things that should stay in the past, like <laughs> bloodletting. Yeah. But there are things that, you know, maybe like maybe like... Uh, knowing how to navigate and yeah. knowing how to keep your home cool and, and warm and, and, and such. And other such uh, curiosities. Frivolities. Yeah. Frivolities. Frivolities. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Navigating based on other islands as vantage points is a very important piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. I say every piece of the puzzle is important, yeah. personally, because otherwise you left with an unfinished puzzle. Mm -hmm. All right, it's deep. It's deep. <laughs> that's right. You can you can take that and run yeah. with it. Uh, the Hawaiian Islands similarly are a cluster of islands where you can see other islands from the shores of the island you're standing on. If you can navigate based on these vantage points, you can travel much further than previously believed based on ancient navigational techniques. Currently, the Polynesian Voyaging Society funds the teaching and revival of non-instrument wayfinding under Nainoa Thompson, Mao Pielug's apprentice, uh, who comes back. Okay. So, be ready. Yeah. <laughs> According to the Society's resources online, there are three key components to Polynesian non-instrument wayfinding. Number one. One! Plotting a course strategy. This included watching the winds and the waves for optimal sailing, timing, and direction. The goal is to, if possible, sail downwind of your destination in hopes that both the waves and the wind provide you with the most direct course. Two. You can say two. Ahead. You two. said one. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Tracking distance and reference points along the shore, but also tracking reference markers in the stars or the known current. That's what I said. You said that. Yeah, you knew that. Because it was written in an earlier paragraph. That's, so, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yes. And, and you know. Stars. Three. Thank you. Identifying the optimal landing point for your destination once in the vicinity. Don't want to land on rocks. You don't want to land on rocks, but you do want to land. Yeah, generally. There's a lot of, a lot of good takeaways here yeah. in these ancient practices. Our expertise is, is shining through better than usual, I think, here. <laughs> so just three pretty classic ways to tackle something, which is like, have a pre-thought-out strategy. I know, yeah. You know, uh, track reference points. It is all very Look important, but yeah, you're kind of like, what? <laughs> it's one of those things we take for granted. Yes, exactly. That we, that we know exactly. how to do. Because we always plan. It's not like we write parts of this show 20 minutes before we record. But let's talk about the 1976 voyage. After completing the construction of the ship in 1975, and with their navigator in place, the society began planning their first voyage. They decided to launch their first attempt as part of the bicentennial celebration in the United States. Okay. Do you think we'll still be alive for the tricentennial? Um, Is that that's in just under fifty years. I I think I'll still be around. Yeah, probably. You'll probably be gone. I'll though. be gone. You're old. I'll be long gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but still podcasting. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, the plan was as follows: pack the canoe with provisions the same way the ancient Polynesians had, including animals which is that uh, there's some interesting stuff coming up, and navigate with a small crew from Maui to Tahiti. Mm -hmm. Animals were actually a pretty important part of the historical study on the voyage. They wanted to study how the ancients had cared for the animals en route and to make sure they could have been safely transported and then bred to then become common species on the Hawaiian islands. They believed in this so much that they actually partnered with the Honolulu Zoo and zoologist Jack L. Thropp in a type of research called backbreeding. Oh. Yeah. Uh, it's actually really neat. Yeah, and from Maui to Tahiti is about 2,695 miles. Um, as so, the crow flies. As the crow flies. So yeah. not necessarily as the canoe sails, <laughs> but it's it's no uh, it's no short hop. It's not a jaunt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it is very, it's about an eight-hour flight. I'm going to pop on over to Tahiti. Yeah, so it is not close. Not at all. I think the journey takes about a month yeah. round trip. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's get back to backbreeding. Okay. 
Backbreeding refers to the act of taking modern-day animals and selectively breeding them to isolate and identify specific traits that belong to ancient, extinct ancestors of those modern animals. Whoa. That's crazy. That's super cool. <laughs> I was going to say, like, can you do that with man? But I think that's just, like, dumb guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. there's accidental backbreeding yeah, that yeah. recreates the Neanderthal. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's You've cool as hell. So you're basically, that's so yeah, sick, oh, yeah, though. You know them. So they're, re they're like reverse engineering extinct breeds. Yeah, they're turning the clock Because those genes still exist in modern day animals. So you, I guess you can... It's, 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 by, it's really yeah. interesting. And there's a really good example of a specific creature that, okay. that they did this with. Basically, um, <laughs> by breeding out everything that made it uh, useful on, on the surface. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But not really. It is still useful. Um, so the Honolulu Zoo was trying to breed a type of dog called a Hawaiian poi dog. Mm -hmm. These dogs are thought to be related to the curry dogs of New Zealand and similar ancient dogs found in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. But there's something unique about them, something okay. very special that I think the two of us will identify with. Yeah. They're not great at really anything. Oh. Yeah. They, I, want, not, I want one. <laughs> they're not that good at doing much. Yeah. Cool. I want one too. Um Although I, w I wouldn't say my cat is really particularly good at anything. Yeah. I didn't need to backbreed for that. Yeah. <laughs> she started doing this thing in the morning where she just puts her paw on my mouth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wake me up. Yeah. Anyway, uh, some dogs are hunters. Some are good protectors. Some are good scavengers. Uh, not the humble poi dog. Okay. If the poi dog can be called anything, it's an unlikely survivor. All right. <laughs> Which is so cool. Yeah. Poi dogs were known to be able to eat anything. Oh. So ancient Polynesians would feed them scraps. They're kind of the compost dogs of the island. I mean, that's an that's a very valuable skill. It's extremely valuable. Yeah. yeah. And I still continue to identify with the poi dog because I eat trash. And people are constantly feeding you scraps. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's something about my face. Yeah. <laughs> Those double decker Hollywood buses yeah, come yeah. by and people throw orange peels Popcorn. at me. Popcorn. <laughs> yeah. And I'm catching Refuse. all of it. Yeah. yeah. And if times got particularly tough, the dogs would return the favor um, and okay. and be fed uh, to the, the 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 people would eat the dogs They'd eat to, the to dogs survive if, if they had to. Um, so again, not useless. No. Yeah. Actually, very useful. I would assume kind of gamey, but hey. Yeah, maybe know. a little bit. The only other sources of meat on the island were pigs and chickens. We'll cover that in a minute. But pigs were also a source of fertilizer, and it took a long time to raise them to adulthood. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, the pigs couldn't breed as fast as dogs could. Okay. It's, it's an investment, a long-term investment. A pig, yeah. An angel investment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of this changed when Europeans arrived on the islands. Oh, everything changed for the better? Ah. No? Hmm. Oh, no. okay. I wonder if that's ever happened. Probably not. No, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah. No, I don't think so. It's, it's always bad. Always bad yeah. uh, when the colonizers roll up. Two different things happened mm -hmm. in addition to other things. Yeah. Um, the Europeans thought eating dogs was disgusting and used it as one of the many justifications for classifying the native Hawaiians as uncivilized. Okay. And thus they justified killing, enslaving, and mistreating the native Hawaiians. Really? I, you know what's crazy? I would say that's more uncivilized than eating a, a useless dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh, huh. It really is. Uh, also, the Europeans brought dogs along with them that bred with the local poi dogs. This new breed of dogs bred out the poi dog entirely, replacing yeah. it with hybrids and new breeds that could hunt and protect or scavenge better than their poi dog counterparts. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, that is also like 
the history of Hawaii is, you know, it's an island in the middle of the ocean, like really in the middle yeah. of the ocean. Yeah. So whatever's been there, I don't, I don't know, you know, obviously I'm stupid, but uh, <laughs> it's a delicate ecosystem, sure. right? You can't just yeah. like bring a new animal, like say a ship full of rats. <laughs> yeah. And then expe- or your dog. And then let's say the rats infest the island. You can't just release snakes to kill the rats. <laughs> Uh, because then you have a snake problem and the snakes start eating all the native birds. Right. So I then think you need to release a mongoose. A mongoose, <laughs> yes. which then also eats the birds. <laughs> it's and like each other. It's and just the like a dogs. constant, like, yeah, I mean, and I know Hawaii has had a ton of problems with that because it's, you know, you can't just introduce something to an island that has been, had its own very delicate, but like, very high functioning ecosystem for right. thousands and thousands. Oh my I mean, god! Yeah, since and, the and, island, and you you're know. you know famously not the only stupid person. No, there are many, many stupid us. people that there's are many bringing wildlife and plant life continually to other countries yeah, and, and yeah. islands yeah, and yeah, states, like smuggling like, it in. Yes, exactly. knowing full well <laughs> that it is illegal and dangerous. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't bring seeds with me. I thought this was America. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought we took care of the monarchy here. I'm bringing my seeds and my uh, my apothos and kutsu and other uh, lantern flies and and all number of invasive invasive species. If I can't travel with a suitcase full of zebra mussels, <laughs> is is it watertight? Is it filled with water? And it's filled with water. Yeah, yeah. Heavy? There's yeah. no wheels <laughs> on it. It weighs 200 pounds. You just bent o- doubled over dragging this thing through the terminal. <laughs> no, I don't help me. I got it. It's not waterproof effectively. <laughs> you're constantly asking, you're pressing the flight attendant button because it is a carry-on. You're yeah, asking carry-on. for for more water. Do you have water and also salt? Or no, they're fresh water. Fresh water. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have unsalted water? <laughs> Of course. <laughs> Naturally. Yes. Of course, sir. You're you're flying first yeah, class, yeah. yada yada. Yeah. <laughs> a suitcase full of zebra mussels will be appearing in the merch store. Yes. Keep your eyes peeled. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> anyway. <laughs> With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. The holidays are just around the corner, and HelloFresh makes this busy time of year easier than ever. With chef-crafted recipes and pre-portioned ingredients delivered right to your door, so you spend less time meal planning and prepping. With over 35 weekly recipes, there's something to please everyone. You can also easily customize your recipes by swapping proteins or sides upgrading to choice proteins, or even adding protein to a veggie meal. I love HelloFresh. I love getting a box in the mail from them. Everything I've ever had is really good, it's super easy to cook, and it's a lot less waste. Go to HelloFresh.com shiphitsfan65 and use code shiphitsfan65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Once more, go to HelloFresh.com shiphitsfan65 and use code shiphitsfan65 for 65% off plus free shipping. One of the best parts about living in a large city is getting to explore it, but sometimes using a car or public transportation is just not the best way to do it, which is why I love using an e-bike. From discovering new places to just going the distance, there is so much to see, and you can experience even more of it with electric e-bike. 
The brand new Electric XP 3.0 is designed to handle tougher terrain and longer trips, giving you their best ride yet. And right now, for a limited time, you can save up to $250 on their Black Friday bundle with the purchase of any 3.0, light, or premium electric e-bike available now through November 25th. So what do I like about the Electric XP 3.0? Where do I start? <laughs> it folds, so it's great to get in and out of small spaces or into my apartment or my trunk. It's got the throttle, which previous e-bikes, and you know, not to toot my own horn, but I was a bit of an early adopter of the electric bike, but none of them have had a throttle so far. So this makes this just this amazing transportation like machine. The comfort, uh, it's so comfortable. The suspension can take potholes or rough bike trails. It is super fun to ride. It just has so much get up and go and you can charge it so easily. And you know what? Sometimes you want to ditch the car. You don't need to drive that whole hulking vehicle around. You can use the bike for errands, your commute, weekend activities. I have on many occasions taken the electric bike here to the office at Funhouse. The Electric XP 3.0 is your powerful companion for adventures. It can cover up to 45 miles on one charge, which is phenomenal for an e-bike battery, and reach up to 28 miles per hour with the powerful 500-watt motor, which is extremely quiet and has increased torque for more power. The gearing is optimized, suspension is great, the brakes have better heat dissipation, and it has a built-in rear rack for day-to-day trips and groceries. I have a basket that I put on mine. They're designed with durability in mind. They ship Fully assembled, you'll be on the road in no time, and the battery is removable. You've got a bright LCD display, seven-speed gearing, pedal assist. It's amazing. And their mission is simple. It's surprisingly affordable, and you can make it your own with amazing features at an unbeatable price. 200,000 dedicated riders are on the road so far. So start your next adventure with the Electric XP 3.0 today. Order now and save up to $250 with a special Black Friday bundle. Visit electricbikes.com to learn more. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C, ebikes.com. In 1967, the Honolulu Zoo studied all recorded descriptions of the poi dogs, along with a few surviving drawings and paintings from the 1800s, and they bred dogs to match these traits. And after three generations, they had managed to breed a dog matching the ancient descriptions and skeletal remains. That's cool. That is so cool. (laughs) Yeah. That is awesome. The zoo provided the Hokulea crew with Hoku, a golden-haired poi dog, selected specifically for its resemblance to ancient dogs that would have made the original voyages. Their commitment to authenticity is impressive. Yeah. I'm going to look up a picture of a poi dog now. I'm blind reacting. Did they eat the dog? To the poi dog. I don't think so. I am looking it up. Oh. It's cute. It's very cute. It kind of... Yeah, wait. It's kind of a... What does it look like? Oh There's God! A terrier Here's going a on bizarre stuffed one that uh, looks super that. messed up. I'm getting a lot of different dogs. I guess because they had to like be artificially recreated. Yeah, so they they're not, not be a. Yeah. Oh yeah! Wow. Are you seeing the taxidermy? Uh, this one? Yes. Yeah. It okay. looks it looks stupid, which is cute and funny. It's it's wow! I we got to tweet this when this episode comes yeah, out. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna. Remind me next <laughs> Wednesday at noon to tweet messed up looking dog picture. <laughs> okay. Reminder set. Hold me to it, guys, in the mentions. Anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's <laughs> Hoku uh, brought along because uh, the guy looked old. Yep. 
The zoo also bred ancient razorback pigs and Polynesian chickens specifically for the 1976 voyage, but when it came time to launch the Hokulea, the zoo refused to part with the pigs and chickens because they had grown too attached to them. What? Listen, if I raised if I raised a razorback pig from from infancy to adulthood, uh, that would be my pig. I'm not letting it get on yeah. some ship. That's that's you a kidding good point. me. Yeah. And think of all the fertilizer I'd be giving up. But the chickens, they were attached to the chickens. Yeah, that I don't get. Yeah. I mean, whatever. It's it's unusual, sir. Yeah. But I probably would be in the same boat. Sure. <laughs> I would be very connected to it. Yeah. Um, so the crew instead was forced to purchase a modern pig for the voyage last minute. It had a suit on. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you got? Just this modern pig. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> when are we setting up? I see. How novelty. So, so it's, it's, it's modern in terms of not thousands of Genetics? years old. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. from like... The late 1800s. Yeah, yeah. How, how queer. <laughs> a voyage by sea. <laughs> um, anyway, with Hoku the poi dog and a modern pig in tow with their provisions, the Hokulea departed from Honolulu Bay, Maui bound for Papeete, Tahiti. On board the canoe were Captain Elia David Ku'u Aloha Kawika Kapahulahua, Navigator Mao Pei Lug, and 13 other crew members. The voyage from Maui to Tahiti was successfully navigated completely without modern instruments. However, yeah, yeah there was dissension among the crew members. There what? are varying stories about what happened, but what everyone agrees on is that it escalated to physical violence. What? Yeah. So I was, I mean, at first I was kind of surprised by this, but then you think about it, like, you know, no navigational stuff. Uh, it's incredibly risky. They're out there. They have one navigator. What do we know of men at sea? <laughs> I mean, driven. Yeah, they're often driven, driven to madness. madness. Yeah, I, I feel like even the smallest decision is is being weighed against like life or death odds. Yeah, and so like I'm assuming that tensions very quickly ran extremely high. Probably once they lost sight of land, like yeah. as seasoned sailors yeah. as they may be, this is totally you know uncharted waters in a way for them. They've never been yeah. in them in this way. So like putting myself in their shoes, it's like. Yeah, that that would be pretty stressful. I I mean, like considering that I can get a little uh, snippy in a uh, gameplay recording. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, but anyway, uh, hands were thrown, the gauntlet mm -hmm. thrown down, and upon reaching Tahiti, Mao Pieluk decided to leave the crew and returned home to the island of Satowal. The navigator. Yes, that and is the, the one person who knew how to navigate like this in, yes. in the world at the time. It yeah, sounds so, like okay. So they uh, they lost that guy. They, okay. they they must have really screwed up for him to be like, you know what? I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. And this guy's like sixty something, mm -hmm. so I'm sure he was like, no, yeah, I'm no not, thanks. I'm, yeah, I'm going home. Yeah, this is not worth it. And um, this th this is not the uh, ill-fated voyage, I right. should say. Uh, so they lose him, but they had to get the boat back to Hawaii. So on the way back, they utilized modern navigation and instruments to get back to Hawaii. And even though the initial voyage to Tahiti had been a success, the goal had been to travel round trip. Right. In 1977, the society launched the Keala i Kahiki project. This was an exploratory voyage launched from a different location to see if a different launching point was more advantageous for the voyage to Tahiti. It was also a chance for them to work with a new traditional navigator, Nainoa Thompson. That Remember, was the, yeah. uh, the uh, mentored by mm -hmm. P.A. Luke. Yeah. Nainoa was self-taught on the notes and writings of Mao P.A. Luke. Oh, yeah. Self-taught. 
I thought it was a more of an active that's mentorship. What thought, that's what it sounded like earlier. But. Okay, well, hey, you know what? We all learn in different ways. <laughs> yeah. This voyage proved that Nainoa was up to the task of helping to navigate the Hokulea free of instruments. Again, cool as hell. Yeah. The goal was to bisect the tract of the... The goal... The goal was to bisect the... Tr the goal was the... <laughs> the goal was to bisect the track of the original voyage. At the time, it was considered a failure. However, after reviewing the voyage maps, it now appears that the tracks would have bisected just further south than originally anticipated. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to the 1978 voyage. Yeah. Buckle up, folks. With a new navigator in place and a desire to complete the voyage round trip to Tahiti and back using traditional navigation methods, the Polynesian Voyaging Society put out the call for crew members for the subsequent voyage. The plan was a 30-day trip spanning over 2,500 miles. Ooh. Oh my god. Yeah. As a compromise, while Nainoa Thompson navigated without instruments, they also included Norman P.E. Inea as an instrument navigator. His job would be to track the actual position of the ship and advise if they got drastically off course. So they had a backup plan. Yeah. Yeah. A number of volunteers responded to this call, including local legend Eddie Akau. Eddie was born in Kahului, Maui in 1946, right after World War II. Growing up on Maui, Eddie learned to surf at Kahului Harbor and was a notably strong swimmer. In 1959, his family moved to Oahu, and Eddie was 13 at the time. Three years later, he dropped out of school to work for the Dole Pineapple Cannery to earn money to buy his first surfboard. He continued to actively surf on the weekends, entering competitions, and generally becoming a local surf hero. You've probably seen the name before if you've ever been in like a, I don't know, a Quicksilver store. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. I remember as a kid seeing the name all over the place. And I didn't, I didn't know who he was, but it was yeah. like a, yeah. No, this guy's a legend, and he yeah. was a legend before he got on the Hokulea. Yeah, yeah. So six years after dropping out of school, in 1968, he became the first lifeguard hired by the city and county of Honolulu. And under his watch, not one life was lost in Waimea Bay from 1968 to 1978. Eddie was said to have saved over 500 lives during that Oof. time. In 1971, he was named Lifeguard of the Year, and six years later in 1977, he won the Duke Kahanamoku Invitational Surfing Championship, one of the most prestigious surfing championships in the world. Lifeguard of the Year. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. In 1978, he volunteered to join the crew of the Hokulea. Part of his reasoning was that he could provide safety and lifeguard services for the crew aboard. Mm -hmm. But also, as a native Hawaiian, he saw the voyage as a chance to honor his ancestors and their history. It's like, uh, you know, how we honor our ancestors by going from pub to pub on March 17th, <laughs> falling <laughs> yeah. in the street. Yeah. Um, at 6.30 p.m., March 16th, 1978, the Hokulea departed from Alawai Harbor in Honolulu, bound for Tahiti with a crew of 16. Problems started almost immediately. Uh-oh. Well, for one, I don't know if they had a modern pig. <laughs> That's true. Which is not good. Yeah. Um... They left the harbor with trade winds at 30 knots, clear skies, and 8 to 10 foot swells. However, there was a gale warning in effect. The crew had been advised that winds off the shore of the island could increase drastically within the next 24 to 36 hours. Oof. When advised of this, Captain Dave Lyman and navigator Nainoa Thompson agreed that these conditions, while potentially dangerous, could also be optimal for their trip. They hoped to get a fast start to their voyage. Yeah, okay. The goal was to get downwind of their destination and let the increased wind speeds help push them along. The key would be launching at the right time and getting into position before the winds kicked up. You, uh, you may have an inkling of what's about to happen. Yeah. The winds increased slightly earlier than expected. 
and the swells grew. The Hokulea had weathered large swells before, however, it was typically further into the voyage. At the start of the voyage, the canoe was weighed down with supplies for the full 30 days along with the full crew. The additional weight made it difficult to control the canoe as the waves grew. And as the winds continued to increase, they shifted the sails to try and steady the ship's course. It allowed them to right the ship, but it also allowed the waves to wash over the gunwales. The waves washing over the gunwales filled some of the starboard compartments with water and damaged a portion of the hull. Oof. This instantly threw off the balance of the canoe. Yeah. Between the shift in weight and the increased wind speeds against the sails, only five hours after leaving Honolulu, the Hokulea was upside down, off course, and adrift in the open sea. God. The crew, all 16 of them, clung to the upside-down hull canoe, which, despite being capsized, had not sunk. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, shouts out to the construction of this. Of Again, canoes. made with yeah. uh, recreations of ancient tools. Yeah. They drifted on the capsized boat all night until dawn. In the morning, the navigators made an upsetting discovery. Planes flew overhead but did not seem to spot the boat in the water. It appeared that these planes were too high to see them. This meant they had drifted off course and were rapidly drifting out of the area where rescue craft would have been able to spot them. Unfortunately, they had no radio response from the mainland. No one knew to come look for them yet. One of the crew members, Snake Ahi, took a surfboard and paddled out for help. As he paddled, he saw a low-flying small aircraft and believed it had spotted the ship, so he turned around and paddled back. That is a terrifying prospect. Just getting on a surfboard and swimming out into open water in the hopes that, like, someone sees you? It's not good. Oof. However, upon reaching the Hokulea, he was informed that the plane had missed them entirely. So they began firing flares in hopes that passing ships or planes would see them, but it seemed like they were too far off course. In the morning, they could see they had floated closer to the shore, and the navigators were able to identify the islands of Oahu, Lanai, and Molokai. They decided to continue firing flares, but they knew that time was running out. After more than 18 hours in the water, many of the crew members were experiencing early signs of hypothermia and they were quickly running out of food and fresh water. Eddie Aikau, seeing that the shore was potentially within reach and feeling an obligation to do whatever he could to save the crew, asked the captain if he could swim to shore to get help. The captain agreed and both navigators offered advice for handling the currents and charting the most likely course to Molokai, which they believed was the closest shore. Eddie paddled out on a surfboard towards Molokai. He was never seen again. The crew continued to fire flares until 8.47 p.m. that night. A Hawaiian Airlines flight coming from the island of Kona spotted one of the flares. It circled again to get a better look at the canoe before notifying the Coast Guard. Imagine that, being on a commercial flight, and it's like, okay, we're coming into our landing. Uh, We're just going to do a quick pass over because we saw an overturned traditional (laughs) giant canoe. And uh, don't worry, we're going to get you into our gate probably about eight, ten minutes late. The Coast Guard sent a helicopter to verify position, and then a rescue effort was launched. The Coast Guard arrived at the Hokulea at 1.02 a.m. March 18th, but were unable to complete the rescue until dawn. The next morning, all 15 remaining crew members were rescued, believing that Eddie had made it to the mainland and sent for help. When they learned this was not the case, they were devastated and a search for Eddie began. At 3.20 that afternoon, a helicopter spotted Eddie's surfboard about five miles south and west of where the Hokulea was found. Off course and adrift in choppy waters, they were unable to retrieve the board. Following the wreck, Mao P.I. Luke returned to assist with navigation and mentor Nainoa Thompson, and the Polynesian Voyaging Society instituted rules that all future voyages would be accompanied by a guide ship, with which they would maintain radio contact. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. It sounds like a good idea. I mean, you 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 want to do, like, do it. Like you want to do it. You want to do it without it. 
to accurately recreate, you know, the conditions, but... Well, yeah, I mean, you also have to assume, though, that these Polynesian sailors did not immediately settle on the winning formula. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yes, your ancestors were experts at this and incredible at it. It hasn't been done this way in a while. And <laughs> like, it probably took them a, a, a long, few tries yeah, and yeah, maybe yeah. a few capsized ships to, yeah. to get it yeah. uh, to this point. So they went with a sort of, you know, backup, yeah, uh, yeah. a safety con- uh, contingency plan. Mm-hmm. Two years later, in 1980, Nainoa Thompson would recreate the 1976 voyage to Tahiti successfully, becoming the first modern native Hawaiian to navigate the voyage without instruments. That's awesome. That is so cool. And I can only wonder what happened on that ship that Mal was like, I'm done forever. I know. I'm not getting hell? back on it. Yeah. I mean, it must have been really bad. Yeah. Five years after that, the Hokulea, having made its successful voyage to Tahiti, embarked on a two-year, 12,000-mile voyage through the Polynesian Islands and at each stop, they invited others to join the crew to honor their ancestors who made similar voyages in the times before colonialism. That's pretty cool. That is awesome. Yeah. That is rad. And so for the next decade, the Hokulea made multiple voyages through the islands before embarking on a voyage up the west coast of the United States, making multiple stops all the way up through Washington and Puget Sound up into British Columbia. Whoa. <laughs> Isn't that insane? Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. The following year saw the Hokulea sail as far as Easter Island and then back through the Polynesian archipelago as it toured the Hawaiian Islands for a 20-year anniversary of its initial voyage. In the early 2000s, the Hokulea voyaged from Hawaii through Micronesia to Japan. And in 2014, the Hokulea embarked on what would become its longest and largest voyage of all. From 2014 to 2017, the Hokulea sailed around the world to Australia and Papua New Guinea, around South Africa to the Caribbean, through the waterways of the U.S. and the Panama Canal to the Galapagos Islands before finally returning home to Oahu in 2017. Oh my god. This is almost without a doubt the most successful uh, uh, life a ship has had that we've covered after the incident we're covering. Yeah, yeah. Like, the integrity of the boat was never really in question. No, and no. And the that, fact that it, that, yeah. that that the vessel went on to create these incredible adventures is just—it's really cool. Yeah. Um, it is really unfortunate that Eddie was lost. Um, but he's his name has been remembered. Uh, by locals and then in Quicksilver shops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been commercialized. Too, it's but, been commercialized a little bit, but like basically, yeah, the phrase is Eddie would go. Eddie would go. That's like a big yeah. T-shirts, mm. stickers, mm. anything you can imagine. Mm. That 2014 to 17 voyage to date is one of the longest modern voyages completed using ancient navigation and technology. So there you have it. That is the Hokulea, uh, a really incredible effort to uh, connect with the the sailing tactics of uh, ancient Polynesians. uh, And and by all means, a success eventually, Mm -hmm. uh, aside from the 1978 voyage. Yeah, so, it's uh, still, as far as I know, it's still around, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I would imagine. I don't I, think I, it's been scuttled. I, I, yeah, yeah, as a, as a strategic barrier. Yeah, they don't want anyone else to get the technology. Exactly, yes. Yeah, so uh, that is, uh, we, are, we are really happy to be back. This is an incredible story to get back to it. And I, I learned a lot. This is very different than other subjects we've covered. Yeah, not, I mean... Obviously, somebody died and be, kind of became a, or further solidified their status as a local legend in the in the process. So it's not without tragedy, but it's not. Uh, we're not dealing with mass death. No, it's a very heroic, yeah, uh, death. And, and, and it was a noble pursuit yeah. from start to finish. Yeah, 
so uh, just obliterating the idea that these islands were settled by accident. <laughs> just like, so oh my god. So stupid. We think they just kind of picked a direction and just went. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Congratulations, uh, doctor. Anyway, do you want an honorable mention, Foghorn Patrick? Yeah, please. Uh, so today's honorable mention, well, first of all, is brought to our attention by Choir Mime on Twitter. Shouts out. Mime. It's going to become important later. No, I mean, similar fields to what we're covering today, <laughs> I should yeah, say. Yeah, parallel paths. Yeah. So of all the enemies of this show, of which there are many, <laughs> both individuals and institutions, <laughs> Perhaps none is greater than the clown. <laughs> now, typically a land-faring people, clowns do sometimes venture into the water, always with disastrous results. <laughs> okay. Are you with me? Uh, yeah, I'm along okay. for the ride. Never has this been more apparent than Norfolk, England, 1845. Arthur Nelson, a clown, <laughs> announces that he would sail up the river in a wash tub pulled by geese. <laughs> Now, listener, <laughs> you may be thinking to yourself, how many geese must be lashed to this tub? <laughs> I was to, just about to ask. Uh, the answer is zero because it's actually pulled by a rowboat by an underwater rope. Oh. Yeah, it just looks like geese are pulling this clown in a barrel, essentially, <laughs> down the river. This is this is what I detest about clowns is the trickery. And exactly. In the yeah, they're not honest. No, yeah, yeah. It's duplicitous. Yeah. So the stunt took place near the Yarmouth Suspension Bridge, where at least 300 people, many of them children, gathered to watch. Yes. The bridge, which was completed in 1829, was not equipped to deal with that many people. The chain suspending the south side of the bridge collapsed, falling into the water. Now, because of the bridge, the chain supporting the bridge on the north side remained intact. It essentially turned it into, like, a ramp, right? Like, one side of the bridge collapsed and went in the water. The other side was still up. So it's essentially like a slide. That is extremely just the, the trap door. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pulled out from under you. So it kind of created a ramp with people sliding into the water. Uh, and now it gets really bad. Oh. Yeah, there was a railing on that side. Oh, no, dude. And do you know who was up front to get the best view? Because they're, have, they're generally have, shorter assume, than, mm, than other people. Uh, probably men and women of, of a smaller stature. No, adults? it was children. <laughs> Yeah, largely Ooh. children were... To enjoy the frivolities of clowns. Essentially crushed against the railing... Wow! ...by all the other people sliding up against them. Oh, God. And, yeah, that's how most of them died. Oh, wow. A lot of people also went into the water and drowned. So, at the end of the day, 79 people, 59 of them children... Good ...died. Lord. Yeah. Wow. And it was generally blamed, I think, on the, some welding issues with Wait. the construction of the bridge. This started so fun. The 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 clown in the yeah. bathtub pulled by yeah. geese. Wow, horrid! I, I I'm, just a, a I, nightmare story. I, I know that this is a show we do and we cover macabre things, but I can't help but deep down inside me, I'm I am upset and with you now. I'm yeah. I'm ma- angry with you, Patrick. We should my be mad co-host. at choir mime for bringing it to our attention. Otherwise, well, no, I never I, would I, have known. I treasure all of our fans, even <laughs> when they bring us horrible tragedies yeah. into our mentions. That is that is great, too. Keep getting at us in the Ship Hits the Fan Twitter mentions, Ship Hits Pod, with just untold and unspeakable uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tragedies. And, 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 and uh, well, I, yeah, tragedies. That's the best word yeah. for it. I think most of those other 20 who weren't children were women. 
Yeah. If that makes you feel any better. <laughs> it doesn't. Okay. It actually feels worse now. Okay. Did the clown live? Yeah, I think the clown was fine and, and got off scot-free, was not charged <laughs> for their involvement, well, nor, because, nor were the geese. Because clowns can't be uh, prosecuted in English no. law. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Geese can. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this was also like promo for a circus that was in town. Oh, my the God. The whole event. Yeah. There's like flyers. You can look up flyers for this geese, this goose float. This reminds me of there's a town in Texas where I think it's in Texas where a circus was passing through and a, a, a guy was messing with an elephant that he was riding, but he had never been trained. So the elephant threw him off and crushed his head like a watermelon. Mm -hmm. So the town hung the elephant. <laughs> from a railroad like installation Hard. yeah we can i can show you so, some articles <sighs> later anyway uh people just in the 1800s just really be be like going nuts yeah um yeah anyway ship hits the fan is researched and written now by Paige wesley mm -hmm. who you may know from her work on cult podcast along with other shows we are uh grateful for for her uh the pen Mm -hmm. with which she wields to write these. It is yeah. longhand. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, and the, sh the show is edited by Nick Schwartz and Kelly Reynolds. Furthermore, uh, we are excited to be back. We have merch in the Rooster Teeth store. That's a few t-shirts. We have stickers uh, of our wonderful tattoo logo made mm -hmm. by Stevie Hogan, Mortar Maid, on socials, an incredible artist and graphic designer. And uh, yeah, anything else we need to say? I don't think so. All right, may your bones bleach in these sands. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you.